One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Wednesday morning, the 31st of July. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The British Prime Minister continues his tour of the regions from Manchester to Scotland. Yesterday, Boris Johnson was in Wales and last night he stayed in Northern Ireland. The Prime Minister met privately with the DUP and today he's meeting with the four other main political parties in Northern Ireland. The meeting's instalment will focus on restoring the executive as Northern Ireland has been without a government for two and a half years. As Mr Johnson arrived at Stormont, he spoke to reporters as we heard on Sky News today. Good morning. Well, it's great to be to be here in, in Northern Ireland and uh, clearly the uh, people of Northern Ireland have been without a government, without uh, Stormont for two years and six months. So my, my prime focus this morning is to do everything I can to help that get up and running again, because I think that's profoundly in the interest of people here, uh, every, all the citizens here in, in Northern Ireland. And we'll be, I'll be helping the parties in any way I can to get that going and, and over the line. I expect Brexit may come up a little bit. Uh, I don't rule that out, and uh, I think the crucial thing to stress is that uh, I obviously attach huge importance to the letter, the spirit of the of the Belfast uh, Good Friday Agreement, and uh, we'll be ins- insisting on that. Other than that, it's just it's just fantastic to, to be here. How Thank you very much. How impartial can you be, Prime Minister, given that you've already dined with it's, the DUP? It's, uh, it's all there in the in the Good Friday Agreement. We believe in complete. Uh, impartiality, and that's what we're going to observe. But the crucial thing is to get this uh, Stormont government up and running again. Thank you. Boris Johnson speaking uh, to Sky News at uh, Stormont uh, this morning on the line with us now is uh, the Minister for European Affairs, Helen McEntee, TD. A very good morning, Minister, and thank you for joining us here on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, There was a a frosty reception, at least uh, of sorts, uh, for Mr Johnson in Scotland and Wales, and he was greeted by booze. How will he be received in Northern Ireland, do you think? I think he'll be welcomed in Northern Ireland, and, and I think it's very positive that he's in Northern Ireland already. Um, I saw yesterday that the, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland was meeting with community groups, was meeting with business interests, was meeting with various disinvestments of the community. And what I would hope, um, obviously, the, the Prime Minister has outlined that one of his main focuses for this visit is to try and help re-establish the executive in Northern Ireland, and, and that has been our focus and our priority for some time as well. 
However, what I would hope he will do in this business is also speak with and engage with those communities, with the various different industries and sectors, with farmers, with communities along the border, to hear and to understand from them the challenges that they are facing now and, and already with the uncertainty of Brexit, but also to understand the huge complexities and, and the implications of a no deal for Northern Ireland. I think what's also significant, and, and I'm sure this will be relayed if he meets with these communities, that the vast majority of those support the backstop and they support it because for them it protects the status quo, it protects their business, it protects their livelihood, but most importantly for them it, it, it helps protect the Good Friday Agreement and, and, and everything that has culminated from that. So I think his visit is welcome. I think he will be welcome, but I really hope that he uses it as an opportunity to meet the various different communities and, and to really hear from them their fears and their concerns because they are very real at this stage and, and the only say from the, the central banks reports this morning that already huge fractions of, of, of industry, not just uh, in the south, but also in the north, are actually being impacted by the the, 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 the uncertainty of Brexit, mm. and we need to, to try and move away from that. All right, well, power sharing in Northern Ireland is a fundamental aspect of uh, the Good Friday Agreement, and undoubtedly many people will speak to Mr Johnson about the Good Friday Agreement on his relatively short visit here today. Uh, And, of course, as uh, the British Prime Minister, he's co-guarantor of the Good Friday Agreement, uh, the other guarantor being uh, the Irish government. Uh, When uh, is Mr Johnson going to meet with the Taoiseach? Well, they spoke yesterday. Um, it was the first time they had spoken since he was appointed, but it was my understanding. And, and, and through speaking with Atishik, a friendly conversation, um, they again shared their desire to have an executive up and running in Northern Ireland as soon as possible. They spoke about ensuring that relations between Ireland and the UK remain strong, but also um, uh, the Taoiseach, I think, reiterated the fact that the best way to do that and to move forward in, in light of Brexit was through ratifying the withdrawal agreement. He invited the Prime Minister to visit Dublin uh, as soon as it was, I suppose, available for him. So uh, I'm not sure when that might be, but the, the invitation was certainly extended and I would hope that he would come uh, to Dublin as soon as possible. OK, but nothing planned as such? Nothing planned at the moment, but again, I think uh, the conversation, it was a friendly conversation, it was one that needed to happen, but uh, at the same time, the Prime Minister has not outlined where he would be travelling to next, most likely home after his visit this morning. Um, but for me, I think what's extremely important, um, aside from that, is that the Prime Minister engages with the European Union. He has been very clear that the UK is leaving on the 31st of December, and I think for a country that's leaving the European Union, it is extremely important for the Prime Minister to be engaging, not just with us, but with all countries in that union, and of course with mm. the Commission and, and with the Chief Negotiator with are you happy with uh, the level of engagement so far? I mean, Mr. Johnson is in office a week. He only spoke uh, with uh, the Taoiseach yesterday. Many believe he snubbed uh, the Taoiseach. Uh, and yesterday's uh, phone call wasn't very fruitful, was it? Well, I, I think it's very clear that the Prime Minister's focus has been on setting up his cabinet, on travelling to Scotland, to Wales, to Northern Ireland. Uh, my understanding is that he hasn't engaged with uh, many EU members at all. Um, he hasn't had a huge level of engagement with the Commission, uh, and so Ireland is not any different to anybody else. I do think it was important that it happened. Um, I, perhaps it could have happened sooner, but there had been uh, a very clear uh, commitment by the mm. Minister, a very clear... But is that uh, not the point, Minister? Should Ireland not be different than anybody else? 
Well, again, we're a member of the European Union and it appears as though the Prime Minister's focus has been on engaging with his own union and that's his prerogative. We can't say that, but a, a conversation has taken place. Mm. Again, it was a very friendly conversation. My understanding of it, that he should extend an invitation to Dublin and, you know, following on from his visit to Northern Ireland this morning, uh, I'm, I'm assuming that he'll be travel home, but what he does next... Sure, but uh, he's the chief executive officer or the officer in command of one side that is guaranteeing the Good Friday Agreement. So the Good Friday Agreement seems to be in question. Uh, and he has paid little attention to his counterpart in guaranteeing the Good Friday Agreement and he has not treated us differently and is that not a problem? Well, we're looking at this as part of the overall negotiation. The Good Friday Agreement and protecting it for us, of course, is extremely important. It is a priority for us. It's also a priority to the whole of the European Union in the same way that citizens' rights and the financial settlement is. But, Minister, it's very, very different, is it not, for the rest of the European Union? Uh, Ireland is a co-guarantor. I mean, we are the people who are at the centre of this, uh, and I suppose we don't need to explain to people listening to us the geography of it or, indeed, uh, the troubles uh, that we endured uh, on this island and, indeed, uh, across Britain for over 30 years. Uh, This is very, very important to us. We are key players. We're stakeholders in this as is the DUP, as is Sinn Féin, as is all of the political parties. The Prime Minister uh, snubbed the Taoiseach, spoke to him yesterday eventually, hasn't agreed to a a meeting and then met privately last night uh, with the DUP and you could hear the British uh, uh, journalists asking him if if he could uh, prove to be impartial given his approach to all of this and meeting privately with Arlene Foster before everybody else. Well, Michael, what I'd say is we can't change any of that. The Taoiseach, from the day that the Prime Minister was elected, extended uh, an invitation to speak and uh, said he was looking forward to speak to the Prime Minister. It hasn't happened until yesterday. It has happened now, and I think it's positive that it has happened. It was a friendly conversation. There wasn't any adversarial tone. There wasn't an engagement uh, that was negative, as far as, again, I've been made aware of. The meeting this morning, I think... Uh, that was always going to be the case, that he was going to travel to Scotland, to Wales, to Northern Ireland. But that invitation has been extended to come to Dublin. Mm. And I would hope myself, and, and again, we can't force the Prime Minister to come, so I would hope that he would travel to Dublin. We have said, obviously, we would like to speak to him about a number of issues. The executive in the North being one of them, our relationship with the UK, which we have mm. always said. Well, it seems as though he's not going to travel as far as Newry, never mind Dublin. He's not going to come to the border or see for himself the complexity of the border, which you suggested to him, Minister. Well, you know, I, I did, and, and I think it would be very helpful if he were to travel to the border and, and you know, if he were to engage with those communities along the border, with those industries, with those sectors that we're hearing time and time again are going to be mostly impacted by a no-deal scenario. But we cannot force the Prime Minister to come. We can offer invitations, we can extend an arm of friendship, and that has always been the case in the past two and a half years or two years that I have been a, a Minister for European Affairs. I've attended several meetings with the Prime Minister, with other ministers, with uh, our Polish and Taoiseach, and that invitation has always been extended. And I think, well, you know, th- there is often a strain when you have negotiations. There has never been a bad relationship between our countries, and we certainly will do everything in our power to ensure that it never moves to that direction. But we, we, we can't force the Prime Minister to travel uh, where we want mm. to, but we can certainly offer uh, an extended arm of 
them, we have always done that. But well, I, 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 I suppose it would be unfair. It's important that he, that he engages with the Commission and that he engages with Michel Barnier because he is still the lead negotiator on this while it's an issue that's severely impacting us and that we obviously have a huge stake in. It is the negotiations that are being led by Michel Barnier. So I, I think it's really important that he engages with him. It would be unfair, Minister, uh, to suggest we have a, a bad relationship uh, as a, a country with uh, the new Prime Minister. It would be untrue to say we've a good relationship with him. And is that because we've no relationship with him? Well, the Prime Minister is there a week. Uh, and I think we have to, again, give him the time to do the work that he felt he needed to do first. And that was travelling to the rest of the United Kingdom. Uh, it was establishing his own. Um, committee or his own cabinet. Uh, we have intention to reach out, to, to come to Dublin, to engage, and obviously uh, we're going into the summer months. A lot of the parliaments are not sitting at the moment, but we are still working, we are still focused on Brexit. We're obviously hugely focused on our own contingency planning, and that's not going to change. There are ministers, uh, the Taoiseach, all of whom will be available over the summer. So that mm. engagement we continue over the summer on many different levels. Our ministers engaging with each other in bilateral relations, but mm. we hope we continue irrespective of the outcome of Brexit. So there's a, a huge amount of work still ongoing. You know, I, I think, and I, I would hope he would travel to Dublin soon, but again, I, I, I don't have a timeline for that. The invitation has been extended, and I, and I would hope it would be sooner rather than later. Or invite you to uh, Stormont or, or to London or Manchester or somewhere else uh, if you were to meet with Mr Johnson Minister uh, what would you say in response to him when as he did say in Scotland as he did say in Wales as undoubtedly he will say in Northern Ireland today and indeed as he said in Manchester the backstop is dead well, I, I don't accept the backstop is dead, um, and the backstop is there for a reason. Um, the Prime Minister has said that he wouldn't accept it. However, in the very same sentences on many occasions, he has very clearly said that he wants to protect the Good Friday Agreement, that he wants to protect the border as it currently stands. He's talked about technology. However, we know and um, we're very clear that technology alone does not resolve those, and technology does not protect the peace process, it doesn't protect an international peace treaty and cooperation that have, has evolved over years. Technology cannot do that. So what we are saying and, and what we will continue to say is that all of the things that we both want to protect, the EU and the UK, the Prime Minister included, and, and mm. he repeated it over and over, can be done through the backstop. But of course, it's an insurance mechanism. It's not something we want to use. By moving it into the future relationship, what that essentially does is take away any kind of legal certainty for us that the, back, the backstop or that the, the, the border and the peace process will be protected. That's okay, I, I imagine that is what uh, the Taoiseach said verbatim uh, to the Prime Minister yesterday and Mr Johnson's response was that it's up to the rest of Europe. Uh, in other words, uh, the Irish are, aren't going to accept his position, which you've articulated there, and the, he's, his position is the backstop is dead and now he's saying it's up to the rest of Europe. I think there is an onus and a responsibility on the UK as a country that is leaving the European Union. As you said at the beginning of the, the, the interview, the UK are co-guarantors of the Good Friday Agreement. And part of that and, and integral to that was the breaking down of the physical barriers and infrastructure on the island of Ireland. And the reason that we were able to do that was because both North and South were members of the Single Market and Customs Union. If the UK are very clearly saying they're leaving mm. both of those, and we expect that, then they have a responsibility to try and 
um, you know, as I said before, square that circle. They have a responsibility to uphold the provisions of the Good Friday Agreement because they are the ones that are leaving. And I don't think it's simply okay for the Prime Minister to say, we won't, you know, we won't do anything. We're leaving and, and we want to protect it without actually putting forward any ways to do so. In fact, we have ways to do that. It mm. is the backstop. It was negotiated with the UK. It was agreed to and it was voted for by the current Prime Minister. So, you know, I suppose what I would say to him and, and what I'm sure Patricia said to him as well is that we want to re-engage on this. We want all of the same things and that's protecting so much of what we have established together over the past 20 years. We have a way to do it uh, you know, and, and we need mm. to start talking about that again. Do you know if uh, the Taoiseach asked Mr Johnson why he wondered why Mr Radker isn't called Murphy? I, I don't. I don't think that's something that came up in, in conversation. So uh, not mm. something that was relayed to me and, and not something that I've read or subsequent, subsequently heard about at all. No. Mm. Uh, was the Taoiseach concerned about that comment, do you know? Again, that's not something that I've, I've spoken about to, to the Taoiseach or... or anybody really it's, it's a comment that I heard or read on the newspaper mm. and, and again that's not something that I've, I've, I've spoken to them about and certainly I would be certain it's not something that came up in a conversation between the two of them. But he, he was referring to the Taoiseach's Indian heritage was he not? Again it, it's not a comment that I heard he made. I've, I've read something on the newspaper mm. other than that it, it's not something that I'm clear mm. about or, or anything that I'm aware has come up in a conversation. Yeah, Annie said Mrs Merkel uh, was like one of uh, the German Stasi and uh, apparently also uh, described Mr Macron uh, to Napoleon. Uh, but uh, he's hurling insults uh, and uh, doesn't seem too interested in sitting down and forming friendships. Well, I, I think if you're a country that's leaving the European Union, uh, you're looking to make friendships with other countries, you're looking to make trade deals with other countries, I think it's important that you show that you can remain friends with your colleagues who you've worked with, that you can remain engaged. Mm. And, you know, he has I suppose that's my question, Minister. Sorry to cut across you, but has he done anything to show you that? Well, the conversation yesterday appears to have been a very friendly conversation. He's been very clear that he wants to have a close relationship with the EU. I, I haven't heard and, and didn't hear the other comments that you're referencing, so I can't comment on them. But what he has always said and what we need to essentially accept because we, we can't accept anything other than he has said in public and, and that I have heard that he wants the UK to have a close relationship with the EU. The best way that I see for him to do that is through engagement. Uh, he hasn't really engaged to that level at this stage but again he is only a week in his position. I would expect and I would hope that in the coming weeks and over uh, the month of August that he will reach out, that he will engage, that he will talk to the Commission um, because if he doesn't uh, and if we find ourselves in a position where there is absolutely no engagement at all, then obviously we were moving closer towards the 31st of October and the possibility of a no deal. Now we're, we're planning for that and we're preparing for that, but that's still not what we want and that's still not the position that we want to find ourselves in come, come okay. the end of October. All right, Minister, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Helen McEntee is a Fine Gael TD in Meath East and to the Minister for European Affairs. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, new research uh, by Liberty Insurance shows uh, that 67% of us admit to using our phone when we're driving. Let's uh, talk about uh, this and some more of the findings in uh, this survey with Sean Brett, who's a spokesperson for Liberty Insurance. Good morning to you, Sean, and thanks for joining us. Uh, 67%, uh, that's the vast majority of uh, people on the roads using their phones at some stage. 
Yes, Michael, uh, good morning and, and thanks for, for having us on. Um, we have commissioned new research looking into driver habits and particularly in advance of the the August Bank Holiday weekend, uh, we want to encourage all people to, to drive safe uh, this, this weekend. And there are some interesting um, stats that have come out and you've called out one of them about two and three drivers admitting to using their phone while while driving. I think one of the other ones we 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 find very interesting is the the 45% of drivers who admit to multitasking um while while driving and again for us um given that August the bank holiday weekend is 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 upon us it tends to be one of the busiest weekends of the of the year so we would encourage everyone to to drive safe and you know focus mm. and concentrate on the road okay and what do you mean by multitasking smoking cigarettes uh, talking to the children uh, making sure uh, that uh, their phone is uh, up to speed and charged and so on or, or what is it that people are doing it's it's those as well as you know we all live busy lives um, you know and it's hopping into the car and and, and eating a you know that quick lunch on the go mm. or finishing off your 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 breakfast um and and as you as you've said there it it is also about keeping up with what's going on in the world whether it's you know trying to stay up to date on on facebook or you know some breaking news that um, that is happening um you know when we're in the car we should just focus on on being safe behind the wheel and getting to where we need to go to and, you know, ideally maybe put the phone yeah. on, on, on silent. And when people are on their phone, as they obviously are, what are they doing? So what, what we've seen is that, you know, uh, 21%, so, you know, one in five people admit to using social media apps such as Facebook and, 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 and Instagram or even dating apps while they're um, at, at red lights. And, you know, then nearly um, four in ten are um, reading emails um texting, browsing the internet, um, trying to stay um, up to date with, with, with what's going on. Um, and again, we would say, you know, drive safe, focus on the road um, as, uh, as we head to this, this, this the last summer bank holiday yeah, weekend. Uh, I suppose it's something that uh, we've uh, seen uh, more commonly, more recently, when a uh, light goes green, uh, the car in front of us doesn't take off, and you notice that uh, the driver's head is down and most likely looking at a phone, which is illegal, of course. Uh, but uh, is it that people are using their phones by holding it in their hand, or do they have it up in a cradle and using it legally? Uh, well, I, I think you know, um, uh, for different people, they have they have different approaches. Some of them will will have the phone in in in, in the cradle. Um, others will have it, uh, you know, on the on the passenger seat. And as you've described, there will be leaning over and 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 looking at it while at the red light, and you know, getting that bit distracted. So when the light goes green, you know, the drivers behind them can see that the light has gone green, which you know creates a, a little bit of frustration for 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 drivers, and you know. Uh, again, if we focused on on, on the road, it would make it a, it a lot safer for all of us. Yeah, I suppose there's things that we do that might be dangerous, but they're not uh, illegal. I mean, you can smoke cigarettes uh, and uh, open a bottle of Coke and uh, check the internet if your phone is up in a, a cradle, and none of that is uh, illegal. But you would contend that all of that is as dangerous as using your phone if you're holding it in your hand. I, I think it's about, you know... Uh, concentrating and, and focusing on, on on driving you know we we make up to a hundred decisions a minute while we're while we're driving and, and sometimes you know we get into we, we know we're so familiar with the road that you know we're not focused and i think whether the the phone is in the cradle or is is in the passenger seat 
it's about concentrating on the road and that that is the most important thing we we all want to get to our destination uh safely and particularly given the amount of people that will be on the road uh, again to enlo- uh, enjoy the last bank holiday before schools return and normality returns you know mm. i think everyone we just want to get everyone from a to b as safely as possible yeah, and maybe we should say it uh, before people ring in or uh, more accurately before some men ring in and advise women to put their makeup on uh, before they leave the house well I, I i think in the in the modern uh the modern day um both men and and, and women can be uh, uh accused of uh, a grooming in the car on on occasion Okay. Thank you very much indeed, Sean. Uh, Sean Brett, spokesperson for Liberty Insurance. Now, Wednesday morning, me. That the local newspapers are in your news agents. Uh, we have them in front of us here as well as we usually do on a Wednesday. Marie Kearns has come in to tell us what's on the front pages. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael. Do you like Halloween? Oh, of course, yeah. Well, you might like it even more if yeah. you, when you hear the news in the Chronicle this week. Their lead story is about a new festival that's coming to Meath and Loud and it's over the Halloween period. Mm. Uh, the Pucka Festival, it's going to be called. It's been led by Falja Ireland in conjunction with Meath County Council and Loud County Council. And it's set to generate €12 million Euro for the local economy by 2020 with some 100,000 visitors expected. The centre of the activities will be in Trim with hubs in Athboy and Drogheda. So okay. that's exciting All to right. look very forward in. to. Very, yes. very exciting indeed. Uh, I take it that was the official launch because I think that was announced some that's time ago, right. wasn't it? Yeah. The official yeah, launch yeah, yeah. was mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. Tuesday as, as okay. far as I know. Alright, yeah. uh, and uh, they're looking at uh, new home care packages as well. That's right. Mm. Uh, they're, they're reporting that no new home care packages are being approved in Meath due to lack of funding according to local GPs and this is following the revelation that Kitty Galligan, an 81-year-old drug victim, is being forced to stay in hospital as her family is unable to secure a home care package. Kitty has been granted seven and a half hours of home help but cannot access it, Michael, because of an embargo on hiring HSE staff. Okay. All right. That's uh, the Mead Chronicle. We go to Dundalk. Uh, the Argus uh, reporting on the concerns uh, that uh, a lot of local people have uh, about a 44-year-old man. That's right. This is Mark Smith, the RD man who has been missing Michael since uh, July 24th, but was last seen in RD in May of 2018. And Margaret Roddy is reporting that he is known to have spent some time in Dundalk, where volunteers with the local Save are homeless and dog are shocked by his his disappearance so hopefully somebody might know something about that case Michael. Okay we go to Drogheda and uh, some good news for a local club. That's right we're home is a heading on the lead story in the Drogheda Independent and the we refers to Grove Rangers FC one of the oldest clubs in the area who made a return home to Rathmullen on Saturday after antisocial behaviour forced them to vacate their pitch for a number of years it had become overgrown. The dressing rooms were in decay. There was litter everywhere. A little prospect of a return just a few months ago. However, a mammoth community effort has seen the dressing rooms renovated, concrete areas added 
and the, the pitch has been transformed. So that's a good news story for the local area, Michael. OK, and uh, we go to Dundalk next. Uh, the Democrat there leading uh, with a restructuring of Garda divisions. Yes, that's the story that was broken by LMFM in relation to this possible restructuring of the Garda divisions. And um, they're saying that, you know, the top brass could go in this major shake-up. Inside on page five, the paper's reporting that there are 153 derelict buildings in urban areas in County Louth, while 725 new dwellings were added to the Louth's residential building stock in the 12 months to June 2019 and a further 568 residential buildings were under construction in the Wee County in June 2019. Okay. So lots of info there. Alright, uh, and uh, I won't ask you this week what a, a triathlon oh, is, no, uh, but maybe I, you can tell I, us what's... I, I, I even like looked it up, I even looked it up <laughs> so you were, wouldn't catch me. I, I was going, I was going oh my God, these sporting stories. Okay. Not that I'm not into sport, but basketball is my sport. If you ask me about that, I could tell you. All right, but, but um, anyway. Triathlon, <laughs> actually triathlons, uh, the plural right. of uh, a triathlon, uh, that makes for yes. the front page uh, story of uh, the That's leader. right. This fair play to this inspirational dad as they're describing him on the front page of the Dundalk leader, Declan Loy, who arrived back on Sunday having completed a gruelling 32, Michael, triathlons in 32 days in 32 counties around Ireland. So, mm. wow, that is some achievement. Fit man. Yes, mm. he's he's from Castle Bellingham, Declan, where he lives with his three children. And apparently he only took up triathlons less than three years ago. So there's hope for us mm. all, Michael. OK, plenty of sport in the league. There is. Mm. And, of course, all the papers in Dundalk are giving plenty of coverage to tonight's big game, uh, Dundalk FC's big game in the second leg tie in Baku in Azerbaijan. And, um, of course, we'll be covering that on LMFM here, Michael. Kick-off is 6pm, I believe, Irish time and Adrian Taft's over there. So tune in to us later on to get all the up-to-date uh, Match report, live. <laughs> okay, and if uh, you're driving around uh, this morning, we've been asked uh, to mention this is uh, if you're driving in uh, Drogheda, to be aware that uh, the dual carriageway at Ballsgrove is closed going northbound, and this is because uh, lorry has shed a load of straw bales. It's resulted in uh, the road being closed since 8 o'clock this morning to allow for the clearance of the area. You can divert via the Haymarket Bridge or the Dunroe Road and a number of bales are also reported on the Marsh Road. So I gather that they started falling there and uh, continued falling until he got to the carriageway. All right, uh, a bit of a, a disaster there, but uh, that's uh, the situation this morning. And uh, thanks, uh, Marie, for bringing us uh, the front page stories of uh, the papers today. Uh, people might want to make comment on them because you'll be back in the I next sure few minutes will, uh, with some of uh, those comments. If people do want to comment on those stories from the papers, something else you've been hearing, or if there's a, an issue that you'd like to raise with us, as as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 185715958. And as you know, you shouldn't uh, drink water from uh, the tap in Talonstown, Louth Village, Knockbridge, Carnalogue, Mills of Louth, Knockdillon, and uh, the surrounding areas. A boil water notice is in place. About 2,000 people are being affected by this, and uh, Irish Water doesn't have a spokesperson available to us uh, this morning. I'm sorry to say, Declan Brannock. Of all TD for Loud, the local resident is on the line. A very good morning to you, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us here on the program this morning. Did this come as a surprise to you? Uh, absolutely not. Um, unfortunately, uh, the Talonstown uh, water supply is an extraction from a river, uh, and river levels, as anybody who's in the fishing business will know, are very, very low currently. 
Uh, in addition to that, over the last number of weeks, um, the local authority in conjunction with Irish Water have been what is known as flushing or scouring uh, the lanes in order to clean the internal pipe network. Uh, and I suppose your listeners will say, why would you do it at this time of the year? Unfortunately, when you publish notices to do it, you have to comply with that and go through with it. So a combination of of, of, of low river levels and indeed uh, what is becoming an obsolete uh, treatment plant uh, at Talonstown. Mm. Um, uh, the reality is, for your listeners, uh, Michael, uh, there's a jigsaw or a network of small water supplies that indeed uh, inevitably are all being linked uh, my understanding is that, obviously, as you said, it affects 2,000 people. It's a precautionary uh, notice from Irish Water, and I was speaking to the local authority this morning, the engineers, and they're doing their best. Uh, I understand that some of the water has currently been augmented from the Cavan Hill uh, supply, and indeed some being augmented from RD. Mm. Uh, but the the boil water notice remains in place uh, for the people who are on the Talonstown uh, water supply. Yeah, and the Talonstown plant is all but obsolete, and uh, there's been calls for it uh, to be replaced over a long period of time at this stage. Uh, but uh, Irish Water were not able to expand on their statement. Uh, they didn't have a, a spokesperson available to us. You've been speaking with the local authority, and we did get back in touch a number of times with Irish Water, hoping that they'd be able to explain to us what happened. Uh, and uh, spokesperson told us by phone that there's been a failure in uh, the treatment of uh, the water and uh, that this has affected disinfection. So it's quite possible that this is water that will make you fall ill. Absolutely. I mean, the advice is very clear. Uh, you must boil the water uh, for purposes of drinking. Uh, any, uh, obviously, water uh, in use and preparation of salads, brushing your teeth, or indeed uh, some of the advice is that if you have ice in the fridge, uh, to not to use it uh, in the event that that could be contaminated also. So, look, at the notice is quite specific. I, I'm informed mm. that it's, it's a precautionary uh, measure. Obviously, uh, the issue of the Talonstone scheme, my understanding is... But it seems as though they failed to, to disinfect the water. How, how could that be? Well, my experience, having been secretary of a group water scheme for 21 years, unfortunately, uh, mechanisms fail. There are usually backup systems in place, and uh, I assume uh, both systems obviously failed, as does happen on occasion. It's unusual in loud of a boiled water notice. Uh, but if the system failed, it's quite possible that somebody drank uh, the bad water and is feeling ill at the moment. Well, uh, I mean, obviously, I'm not a medical person to comment on that, and I think that's a matter for Irish Water and Health Services to address. I think it's important to say that no stone will be left unturned to get uh, the issue of the the pumping station uh, uh, at Talonstown resolved. I understand that there is a proposal... to actually put a booster pump on the Cavan Hill water supply, which is the main supply for Dundalk and large mm. areas in the hinterlands of Knockbridge and Town. But the, but the purpose and of the disinfection is uh, to deactivate or, or kill the pathogenic microorganisms. And when the microorganisms are, are not destroyed or deactivated, people fall ill, do they not? Absolutely. There's a danger of that. Um, uh, the issue here is obviously that uh, you, uh, there, water, as people will know, and a lot of people object to, is chlorinated. Uh, there is what's called a residual of chlorine expected to be in the very last uh, tap uh, on any of these schemes uh, to a degree that makes it 
go right through the system. Mm. Uh, clearly, uh, some chlorination pump or other has broken down, and that's a matter for, for, for the Irish Water and local Council. And indeed, the, the boil water notice was at the advice of the Health Service Executive. Uh, I think, Michael, if I could just finish the point mm-hmm. in relation to uh, the augmentation of the, the and getting the quality right uh, from the Talentstone scheme. The topography of the land uh, and, and water levels in terms of the reservoirs, uh, the, the, what is required on the Town scheme is to put a large booster pump that would pump the water to uh, the, the reservoir uh, the reservoir in Talonstown mm. and that the water will be coming from, uh, I suppose, what would you call it, the state-of-the-art Cavan Hill um, network, which has all sorts of mechanisms on it uh, to notify if any of these systems mm. break, uh, uh, which uh, they're prone to do. And indeed, uh, you know, my own experience would tell me that, uh, you know, there are times when the plant breaks down and I, I know they're doing the best to resolve it, but I, I'm not sure that that is the full issue. I think I started by saying uh, water levels are very low uh, and when you're taking uh, clay, muddy water mm. uh, into a treatment plant that maybe is not capable of dealing with that. Uh, to me, I suspect that that's uh, the greater issue there and uh, I will be calling on Irish water and pressurising uh, Irish mm. water to put that booster pump uh, on on the supply uh, uh, and to supply quality water, which is what is coming from Cavan Hill. Uh, we will be devils for many years. Yeah. Uh, how are water levels that low? I, I mean, fair enough, we've had a, a, a dry spell, but it's been a, a short dry spell, and I'm sure that the rivers are a little bit low at the moment, but they couldn't be that low that you can't supply water, domestic water, uh, to people because uh, we've had an awful lot of rain at the same time in recent weeks. Um, considerably very little rain, Michael, in the area that I live in, I have to say. Hmm. Uh, you know, if you took the spills of rain yesterday and dumped, we didn't get... No, in what, well, four or five uh, weeks, maybe, I mean... I, I haven't been to the river, but I'm yeah. told by those who know that the le- water levels are extremely low and that the water is actually quite... But that's only in the last four or five weeks. Do we have to have rain every day to supply pe- water to people in this well, country? You know, I mean, it's just well, crazy. Michael, that's, a, that's a very interesting point that yeah. you're raising because... Most people can't understand in a climate where we have rain every Keeps second. falling out of the sky, yeah. We, yeah, mm. we don't... The, the, the strange thing about uh, our water supply in this country, we mm. do not have the reservoirs and the capacity mm. to retain water. And that that is why we even have a major problem right along the East Coast. It's really... proposing to pump water yeah. from the Shannon. It, uh, it, it really is crazy stuff. Uh, have people been notified by Irish Water that they shouldn't be drinking their water? Uh, the public notice, I understand... Uh, was issued certainly was issued to all public representatives, uh, and who I, as I did immediately on getting it, I would have uh, both issued a statement and I, I put it up on both Facebook and Twitter for uh, to uh, make people aware. Could I just say, Michael, one mm. of one of the issues in relation to awareness? It's pretty poor, though, isn't it, on behalf of Irish Water? So there haven't been notices sent to houses. People haven't been contacted directly. Uh, they've contacted public reps and they sent a press release uh, to the media. They haven't got a spokesperson available to us uh, this morning and there's no real explanation as to why this is the case. Uh, I mean, there are people now listening to us uh, who are at risk of falling ill and very ill in some cases. Uh, They may not be thinking to themselves uh, about using ice. Uh, Irish Water is telling you if you have ice in the freezer, get rid of it. Uh, in case in case it makes you very sick, don't brush your teeth. At least not with the water out of the tap. You need to boil water and then let it cool, uh, and then brush your teeth with that. Uh, unfortunately, Mike, uh, when you're supplying uh, 
water. Uh, these risks are always there in relation to uh, quality. That's yeah, pretty uh, shoddy communication, though, isn't it? Well, it is. In, yeah. in, but, but, but you have to remember that your program is getting the message out here. So am I. And you know that's you know, short of being able to deliver a notice to every house uh, within a 24-hour basis. I do believe there should be a system in place, and I agree with you that in the same way as the mm. ESB, if what if they're disconnecting a supply or connecting a new supply and electricity is going off in an area, ah, yeah, they're relying you, on other people to do it. Though you know they're relying on on the media to decide. Well, this is uh, important to inform people. We might be busy with something else. We might not. Uh, you might uh, put a, a post up on Facebook or issue a statement or whatever it is and people might see it and they might not uh, but they're relying on other people to do their work for them are they not? Absolutely and I think it's a valid, very valid point you're raising and certainly the issue of, of, of this happening again I think they should have a mechanism in place that within certainly uh, within, you, you, you can't expect that people will get a notice within five mm-hmm. minutes of a difficulty arising but certainly there should be some notification uh, d- d- by direct post to houses in an area particularly if it's something that's going to continue and in Indeed, you know, you know we, we, the whole issue of if people want quality water, uh, having distribution of, of that available, uh, as, as happened last year in the Staline uh, saga in Drogheda. Mm. I mean, if, if people want quality drinking water, I'm sure if this is going to continue, uh, I would expect uh, that uh, water supply would be uh, brought to the villages of Loud, Talonstown and Knockbridge. Um, I think it's important to say, Michael, in relation to the Knockbridge end mm. of things, a large proportion of the rural area of Knockbridge is not affected. Anybody who is on the Calvin Hill supply uh, in the Knockbridge area is unaffected. It mainly uh, refers to the, the village area and uh, towards the Martin's Cross direction. Okay. Uh, and the maps are online, and I think people should consult them. But if anybody has any concerns, uh, certainly to make contact with, uh, with Irish Water or uh, the local authority who are endeavouring to the best of their ability to solve the problem. All right, I have to leave there. I have to go to headlines second. But thank you indeed for, for joining us uh, this morning. Declan Brannock, Finnefall TD in Louth. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns is back with us and you've uh, some of uh, the calls and comments that have been coming to us this morning, Marie. I have indeed, Michael. Good morning to everybody listening in. Not a lot of love so far this morning for Boris Johnson. Jim thinks he's playing some kind of power game by waiting almost a week before making contact with our Taoiseach. It's like he was trying to make a point about how little regard he has for Ireland in the grand scheme of things by keeping our Taoiseach waiting for his call. Mm, yeah, well, and <laughs> forming have, good relationships or none at all. Adds, Jim adds, the Minister McEntee might want us to think that all is amicable and friendly between them, between them but it's obviously far from the case. I don't know. I don't think the Minister let on for a minute that things were all sweetness Rosie. and light. <laughs> uh, I think she, she was uh, quite clear in what she didn't say. Anne says it was disrespectful of Boris to leave it that long before contacting the Taoiseach after being elected. Open and honest dialogue is vital between our two countries to make sure the Good Friday Agreement is not impacted on moving forward and how can we trust that this will be the case if Mr Johnson insists on treating Ireland like the poor cousin who can be picked up or dropped on a whim. Mm, I don't know. (laughs) That's the Prime Minister's prerogative I suppose. 
Deirdre thinks that Helen McEntee is being a bit too diplomatic in relation to Boris Johnson's behaviour since he became <laughs> Prime Minister. Seamus mm. uh, in Dundalk, Boris Johnson has little regard for Ireland. It's his way or no way. Scary times, say Seamus. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's a, a lot of talk at the moment and time will tell what actually happens. Uh, interesting one from Derek and Drogheda who says the UK agreed to this backstop deal Michael if they renege on this they can never be trusted again just because there's a change in leadership doesn't mean that they can just change their mind mm. what is it, is it can they not honour what was already agreed on yeah well I know um, they did and they didn't uh, agree on it uh, it was a deal that was negotiated on behalf of the United Kingdom by the Prime Minister Theresa May and they called mm. it Theresa May's deal with the Euro- here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In union, it was not agreed by the United Kingdom because it was not ratified by Parliament. And it was with the caveat that it would be a deal if it was approved by the British Parliament. That didn't happen. So it was not agreed to by the United Kingdom. In fact, three times, as Boris Johnson has been pointing out recently, uh, the House of Commons rejected the deal. Anne-Marie says, what is Boris Johnson suggesting instead of the backstop agreement? Does he want a hard border? If he doesn't, then he needs to accept the backstop or come up with something that everybody will agree to. But no. so far, there's nothing. Well, he's saying, let's just do everything else that has been agreed apart from the backstop. Take out the backstop and uh, we leave the European Union on the basis that we have uh, agreed to otherwise. Tom is, says it's going to be very interesting to see how the Prime Minister gets on in the North today, uh, meeting the political leaders of the main parties and says, will he acknowledge that the majority of the people in the North want to remain within the EU? I doubt it. I don't think it's going to be interesting at all. I think it's uh, going to be pretty predictable, to be honest. Uh, Mr. Johnson's going to go there and say, we have to get rid of this dreadful backstop. Uh, we won't 
be entertaining that at all. We'll be leaving the union with a deal because we want to do everything possible to get a deal. And people will say it's not possible to get a deal if you don't accept the backstop. And then he says, well, that's why we'll have to prepare to leave without a deal. And come what may, we'll be leaving on the 31st of October. And then the weeks will go on and we'll get to, I don't know, September or maybe even October, maybe even the 31st of mm. October, but something will change in between. Well, Eric is just wondering, he's saying, Michael, does Boris Johnson not have to get a majority in the Parliament to agree to going without a deal? And he says that the majority are against not going without a deal. Do you understand that? <laughs> I understand it, yes. Uh, I suppose he has got a majority. The people of the United Kingdom voted for Brexit. Uh, the default position at this stage is uh, that they leave uh, without a, a deal if uh, they haven't got a, a deal by the agreed date, which is the 31st of October. So unless something else happens in between, uh, it's all been agreed they're leaving without a deal on the 31st of October. Will there be another extension, do you think, Michael? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there will yes. definitely be an extension. I, I, well, I mean, nothing is definite in this. Where no, there, there, there no. is, there is this very scary prospect uh, that they'll box themselves into a, a corner and find themselves uh, with. Uh, the biggest surprise of their lives, which is that they leave without a, a deal and face into this uh, Armageddon situation. But I, I think realistically what will happen is that there will be an extension of some sort, that it won't happen on the 31st of October, and that what most likely will happen is that there will be a general election at a minimum. What happens during that campaign and how it pans out afterwards will probably decide the outcome of Brexit. It will quite possibly be a situation whereby they will leave the European Union with a deal, with a backstop, Mm. with a backstop for Northern Ireland. The DUP will huff and they'll puff, but they'll have no say in it because they won't be needed to prop up the Tory government because that's the obstacle to the backstop at the moment because the Tories are reliant on the support of the 10 DUP MPs. If they're no longer reliant on them, well, then they can exclude Northern Ireland and put a backstop in place for Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom will leave without a backstop. Otherwise, they may go back to a referendum Mm -hmm. or the figures in the Parliament will be such that they'll be able to come to some uh, agreement amongst themselves on the terms that they will leave the European Union that will be acceptable to the European Union as well. Just the final one on uh, Brexit. Uh, Peter phoned in and Peter says that he's uh, he knows a number of businesses that really are uh, unsure about what's going to happen in the event of a no-deal mm. Brexit and are extremely worried. And he says that he feels sorry for business people trying to plan when they're not really sure what they are planning for and that this has been going on yeah. for over a year now mm. in terms of businesses being told you need to prepare for this. Yeah. And he says, and all the while the talking just goes on and on and on and it really is proving a huge uh, block to businesses moving forward. Mm. Well, of course it is. And uh, in particular for businesses uh, on this side of the border, along the border, we're coming into the first two weeks of August, the first of August tomorrow, and it's traditionally the holiday season. In particular, Mm. in the United Kingdom, it's when a lot of people take their holidays. And uh, if you listen to any of the coverage in the United Kingdom at the moment, they're all giving out stink because they're going on holidays uh, to far-flung places with their sterling and they're getting little or nothing back in return not in in relation to what they would have got previously because sterling has slumped it's now 92 Mm. pence to the euro uh, which 
is very bad news for them coming uh, abroad uh, because uh, of uh, the exchange rate. Mm. Uh, but it's also very bad news in the other direction because when we go across the border or across to the United Kingdom, to Britain, uh, the euro is worth 92 pence. So you're getting a lot of bargains. Mm. Well, can I move on to mobile mm. phones? Because yeah. we've had uh, some uh, response to that interview there in relation to the use in cars. Uh, Michael, there needs to be a huge clamp down Sage's Bridge on the use of mobile phones in cars. Maybe they should be banned from the front of cars altogether. Texting Mm. whilst driving is so, so dangerous. You cannot be concentrating or know what is going on around you when you're doing this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another listener, is there stats available on the number of accidents that are caused by the use of mobile phones in cars? I think that would be very interesting, you know, to see. Yeah, if but if you, you know, uh, the other the other side of it is, if you banned phones from the front of cars, mm-hmm. uh, you'd be banning people from using their music system. Uh, because quite often people will use their phones to play music. You'd yes. also be banning people from using sat-navs uh, or mm, maps, yes. uh, as the case may be, because a lot of people use Google Maps to get from A to B yes. and find it an invaluable tool. And it's not something that uh, I think uh, people would want to happen. So, uh, you know, it's finding the compromise there. Mary says she's surprised that the figure for those using their mobile phones whilst driving is not higher because every second person she sees on the road is talking on the phone whilst driving. No one seems uh, to be obeying that particular rule at all and she does still see many people holding their phones in their hands. Mm, yeah, okay. Even though that's against the law. Well, if it's every second person doing it, I suppose the rest of them are doing it but with it up on the windscreen, yeah. <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe so. Mm. Just then, finally, uh, to Tom who phoned in and and Tom says, I listened to you talking about water and that waterful, water should be plentiful. Uh, but just to point out, Michael, I'm a man that uh, is into all of this. Yeah. And we had damn, damn all rain from May 2018 going into August 2019. Anyone who knows anything about springs or water knows that the worst time of year is between now and October. Even if you had a wet summer, spring is at the lowest from the end of July into October. Okay, but I don't know why we're without water, why the reservoirs are, are, aren't uh, stocked enough so that there's enough there to supply uh, the people on the Talonstown 2000 homes in uh, the Talonstown area. I mean, it's not as if we're in drought conditions and there may be a dry period, uh, but we've had a, a lot of rain in the last few months maybe not in the last few weeks or the last month or whatever but my god people it's so easy to forget Uh, I mean we're all sort of giving out about the heat now but a few weeks ago we were giving out about the terrible summer and why does it keep raining and and is it going to be like 2008 and 2009 Uh, and everybody was fed up with the rain because there was so much rain and here we are now a few days few weeks of dry weather and we're without water but I mean that's Ireland there you go All right. (laughs) Thanks for that, Ray. Thanks, everybody, who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850 Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Boris Johnson will hear from uh, the political leaders who meet with him in uh, Stormont uh, today about uh, the concerns of beef farmers in Northern Ireland after Brexit. He's heard about the concerns of Scottish farmers and Welsh farmers and their ability to export and at what price after Brexit. 
includes it. Here, there's a lot of concern about being able to export into the United Kingdom and a 100 million fund has been put in place uh, to help farmers uh, through this very difficult period of the beef exceptional aid measure as it is known the ICSA is calling on the government to make this money available to farmers quicker than is planned and we're joined by Edmund Phelan who's the president of the ICSA the Irish Cattle and Sheep Farmers Association now and a very good morning to you and thanks for joining us. This isn't to be paid until October is it? That's uh, what I believe they say under EU rules. It can't be paid out until the 15th or 16th of October, which isn't, it's not a lot of good, we say, to my members and beef farms around the country because uh, they owe a lot of money to merchants and the merchants uh, want to be paid as well, and, and rightly so. You know. OK, but this is for uh, cattle uh, that have already been uh, produced uh, and uh, finished uh, as such. Uh, will more be needed as time goes on? Yeah, and, and that's the problem. I mean, farmers don't want to be looking for handouts from the EU. They want a fair price uh, for their beef. And uh, at the moment, it's going down week on week. It's been dropped 5 and 10 cents a kilo, which is uh, is completely unsustainable. Unsustainable is a word, or sustainable is a word is being bandied uh, about like snuck with a wake at the moment. But if the farmer isn't getting a fair price, he's not sustainable. Okay, and uh, that uh, in part uh, due to Brexit already, farmers would uh, contend, and uh, there's uh, many uh, uh, measures uh, that are impacting on the price of beef as it stands, let alone those that might be coming down the line uh, in years to come under Mercosur. Yeah, I mean, Brexit is the one at the moment. Uh, Mercosur, the talk about coming down the line over the next few years, but it's already impacting on the trade because it's... People lose confidence. Do I buy cattle? Do I not buy cattle? Uh, you know yourself, and even for your listeners to, to imagine that if they had to go in every week and negotiate their wages with their boss, and he said, no, we're down another five cents this week or another euro, no, we're down, down this week. That's the reality of the situation on the ground. All right. Uh, and uh, the payment uh, of uh, this 100 million uh, will be distributed uh, across the 75,000 beef farmers in uh, the country. Some farmers could get as much as 10,000 euro. Yeah, well, that is true, yeah. It, it, it sounds great, but a person uh, would have had to have 100 cattle. Now, he would have lost at least 20,000 on those 100 cattle this year vis-a-vis the previous year. So it's it's going halfway to um, to covering his losses. But you have to remember, a lot of finishers now could have 200 cattle or 300 cattle, and so they could have lost 50 or 60,000, and they'd be getting 10,000 as the maximum. Mm. But, the amount of money is limited, so because uh, it's capped like, at one hundred, it's capped at a hundred, at a hundred ahead and, and a hundred million. So there's not enough to go around on everybody, you know. And it's been distributed to suckler farmers as well, who will get a maximum of sixteen hundred, uh, which. It looks small too, but it's uh, there's 35 million going to the software sector. Mm. Okay, uh, may not be a, a windfall, but surely it's welcome money given. Uh, oh, it, it, it is welcome, but as I said at the outset, we don't want this. We want a fair price for our, our, our produce, and nobody likes to be going uh, cap in hand to the EU uh, year after year. It's you know, it's, it's not good for morale, and we say even we say the the consumer sort of sees this as our farmers begging for money. They're not paying for money. All we want is a livelihood as same as anybody else. 
Right. Uh, there has been questions uh, about whether there's enough money available or if uh, this scheme will be oversubscribed. Um, it, it probably will be oversubscribed. Uh, there are, but there are a lot of uh, restrictions on, on it as well, which might make it attractive for people because the EU want to uh, tie in a reduction of 5% in production, which mm. um, to me... Um, I, w- I would do that because uh, I, I, I think there's no point in producing something at a loss. But people with very small holdings, they sort of say, "What else do we do?" Like you know, uh, they're trying to they're trying to scrape a living, and uh, they don't know which way to turn. And the suggestion from the ESRI was go to dairy, uh, because uh, that uh, is uh, something uh, that people can make money out of. It's profitable, and if uh, people were to give up uh, beef farming, uh, then that would benefit uh, the environment and our emissions problem. That's um, that's an old codswallop now. It's an economist uh, way of doing it. Dairying is making money, so let's all go to dairying. But for every dairy cow, there's an animal, there's a calf produced which has to be reared. And the calf is less valuable than a beef animal. Uh, that's number one. So you can't just say we'd have another million dairy cows because you can't get rid of the, the offspring. Uh, number two, there's uh, an awful lot of the country, especially the western half of the country, which isn't suitable for dairying. You have small, fragmented farms, poor land, uh, wouldn't sustain uh, a dairy enterprise. Uh, a lot of this country, you cannot plough. Like, your part of the country now up in Loud and Mead, uh, much better land, as is down where I am and down through the Midlands. Like, dairying is, is a viable option. Uh, tillage is an option. But you go west of the Shannon, it's a completely different landscape. So there's no point in saying that uh, everybody can give up suckling and go daring. It's a complete red herring, a non-runner. Right. Uh, you're also concerned uh, about uh, the reduction in nitrogen that's uh, required as well? Yeah, well, well personally, personally, no. Um, I, I have no problem re- reducing uh, re- reducing nitrate levels uh, because I think uh, if we do re- reduce production um by a certain certain degree, it should help price because you know any any business if if they can't sell their product, uh, you're often here going on a three day week. Um, the problem in this country, our advisory service, it when things go bad, they, they tend to advise people to up production to try and uh, make up on we say throughput what they're losing on margin. But that's that's a no win situation for anybody. All you're doing is exacerbating the situation and driving the price down even further. Right. Uh, is uh, this uh, distorting uh, the market in uh, the UK? British farmers are, are very unhappy with uh, the advantage that has been handed to Irish farmers here because, uh, as things stand, we're competing in the same market. Yeah, I can understand their frustration. And I've actually uh, spoken to a Scottish farmers union. I was over at the uh, Highland Show there about a month ago and I called into them. And they were saying, well, they were blaming Irish beef for their problems. But uh, as I said, you need to import beef from somewhere. You're far better off bringing in uh, beef of an equivalent, at least an equivalent standard. Uh, you know how it's reared, reared in the same way as their own. Their real problem, if after Brexit, if uh, the floodgates on South American beef open, uh, it'll come in at a lower price and it will completely put them out of business. Mm. But as things stand, uh, everybody is looking at uh, the same type of price per kilo uh, and uh, the Irish farmers are getting up to €10,000 by way of compensation. It does seem very unfair, does it not? Uh, 
Well, it's it's not unfair to to us. Um, they don't fight their own battles. We have to fight for our members. And as I say, it's only a drop in the ocean. It doesn't. It it plugs a gap, but people are still losing money at that. At best, it's um, giving half. We say replacing half the losses, and in, in a lot of cases, for the bigger finishes, is going nowhere. Nowhere near that. Okay, but uh, the 16th of October is uh, the date uh, that uh, people will receive cheques. Obviously, they have to uh, apply for it uh, in the meantime. I take it uh, people know how to do that at this stage? Uh, I I think, uh, as far as I know, um, around the third week of August, you have to make your application. Okay, we leave there for the moment and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Edmund Phelan is uh, the president of uh, the ICSA, the Irish Cattle and Sheep Farmers Association. Now we'll go from cattle and sheep to chickens because Boris Johnson was uh, on a chicken farm yesterday and uh, they were producing some eggs and Mr Johnson was making uh, a lot of jokes uh, about eggs uh, because they're excellent, and he was talking about Brexit and uh, things like that, and he was also saying uh, that he might have been walking on shells. Oh, walking okay. on eggshells, very good. Brings, brings it. Brexit, excellent. 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 Extraordinary, extraordinary Brexit. All this, all this. Any others? No, that's it. <laughs> Enough. camera. <laughs> yeah, come on. Good to see you. There you have it. Uh, the wit and the charm of uh, Boris Johnson and uh, an extraordinary Brexit, uh, as he was discussing uh, with uh, Sky News, uh, who went on to interview Mr. Johnson about his uh, thoughts on Brexit. Prime Minister, the yes. Farmers Union of Wales, the First Minister of Wales, the National Sheep Association are all saying the same thing that a no deal Brexit would be catastrophic for Welsh farming. What specifically would you do in a no-deal event to make sure they're okay? Well, several points. First of all, we're not aiming for a no-deal Brexit and we, we don't think that's where we'll end up. This is very much up to our friends and partners across the, the channel. They know that three times uh, the House of Commons has thrown out that backstop. Uh, there's no way that we can get it through. We have to have that backstop out of the uh, out of the deal. We cannot go on with the withdrawal agreement as it currently is and everybody understands that it's dead. Uh, we need to get that message across to our friends. If they understand that then I think we're going to be at the races. If they can't compromise, if they really can't do it, then clearly we have to get ready for a no-deal exit. And uh, I think we'll, we'll do it. I think that the people of this country are full of resolve and purpose, and we will look after the farming sector. How, uh, we How will make exactly sure, will you look after We will make sure that they have the support that they need, uh, that if there are markets that are going to be tricky, that we help them uh, to find new markets, that we uh, have interventions uh, that are aimed to support uh, them and, and their incomes. And uh, the, as you know, DEFRA, the, uh, the ministry has done a huge amount already to prepare in advance to March the 29th. We'll do even more uh, to prepare in the run-up to uh, October the 31st when we come out. And you the use, the word, use the word tricky there. They're using the word catastrophic. They're saying this will be an absolute catastrophe. Well, so what specific, other than reassurance, can you give them? The more you prepare and uh, the more confident you are about the measures that you... Likely it is that there will be difficulties uh, when it comes to October the 31st. But we are absolutely resident. I'll tell you why. Unless we're determined to come out on those terms, if we have to, and I say it's, it's up to the EU, this is their call, 
It's, it's their call if they want us to do this. But if, if we have to, unless we are determined uh, to do it, they won't take us seriously in the course of the negotiations. And uh, it's absolutely vital that we're able to walk away. Any negotiation has got to work like that. And I'll make a further uh, point. Some of the changes and adjustments that are going to be necessary uh, in the run-up to October the 31st, and a lot of which we've already done, will be crucial anyway if we're going to uh, come out of the customs union, come out of the single market, as we must in the course of the next couple of years. So this isn't going to be a wasted effort. This has got to be done. And uh, what the government is working on now, uh, with a great deal of energy and confidence, is to get our, our farming socially prepared. If I could say so, Prime Minister, you're saying that this is the EU's call, the ball's in their court. You've told Leo Varadkar today that the backstop must go. But what are you willing to do? What are you willing to compromise on? Because you're saying here you're willing to go the extra thousand miles, but it seems that you're making demands to the EU. What are you specifically willing well, to give here? It's not just me. Don't forget that Parliament has thrown this thing out three times. No, and what are you everybody, everybody understands that uh, that uh, deal won't work, that withdrawal agreement won't work. And uh, so what we are willing to do, and I had a very good conversation, uh, as you say, with, uh, with Leo Varadkar, and uh, we're willing to make absolutely clear what is the case, that the UK, under no circumstances, uh, will have uh, checks at the border in Northern Ireland. Uh, we will throw all our energies into sorting out the, the problems of frictionless trade at the at the border. We can do it. We have all the sorts of uh, technological solutions that are necessary to do it. But let's solve those issues in the context of the free trade that agreement that we're going to do after we come out on October the 31st. That's, that's what we want to do. The pound has fallen to its lowest level in more than two years. Do you take personal responsibility for that? People will be going on their holidays right now, change their money up, and there's not much money in their pocket. You will find that uh, the government does not comment on the, on the currency. Uh, what we will do is get ready for a, uh, a deal. We'll, our friends and partners uh, have the opportunity to do, to do a deal. It's up to them. Uh, but we will also, of course, get ready uh, for the alternative. And the great thing about coming out on October the 31st is it ends all the drift and the dither and the uncertainty for business. And that's the key thing for us. We need to get on with this. It's been three years. The people voted ages ago. Let's get it done. One final quick question. You're in Wales today. You're in Scotland yesterday. Manchester, Birmingham. This feels very much like a general election tour. No, 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 no. I'm, uh, I'm uh, absolutely not. Uh, the, the people of this country have been consulted about uh, a general election in 2015, referendum 2016, they had another election in 2017. Uh, what they want us to do is get on and deliver Brexit, and that's what we're doing. There you go. The Prime Minister is, of course, in Northern Ireland uh, today. That interview from Sky News yesterday when Boris Johnson was uh, speaking in Wales. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, if you've been a victim of crime, there is support and information available for you six days a week on the National Crime Victims Helpline, which is 116-006-116-006. You can also text 085-133-7711 or email info at crimevictimshelpline.ie and we'll give you all of that information again at the end of the next interview because the Crime Victims Helpline 
has published its annual report for 2018. And Michelle Pocaber, who is uh, the executive director of the helpline, is on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Michelle, and thanks for joining us. As I say, people can call you for support and information, and quite a few people have done so in the course of the last year. That's right, yeah. The National Crime Victims Helpline, uh, we've seen a significant increase in people contacting our service, and, and we don't think it's because there's been a significant increase really in crime. It's more we think that people are really aware of our service, and they're knowing that they can call us, email, text, and get the support, get the information that, that they really need and deserve after becoming a victim of crime. Uh, and is uh, there a typical caller? We don't really have a typical caller in that we um, we provide support to uh, victims of, of all crime in Ireland. So what we would do is we would provide that initial listening, um, emotional support. We would answer questions about the criminal justice system, um, if they have any. And then as well as we would look to see, are there any uh, local support services or face-to-face support services that would best meet um, their needs? Um, so, for example, if somebody is a victim of domestic violence, we would look and see, you know, what is the the local domestic violence service that can help support them. Mm. Uh, And when people uh, do call, uh, as you say, uh, you can listen uh, and you can give them guidance and support and point them in uh, the right direction, uh, regardless of of what type of crime it is. But I I gather uh, that there is uh, some common ground in uh, that everybody feels that uh, due to no fault of their own, if you like, uh, they've fallen victim to someone else's behaviour. That's right, yeah. And and most people don't expect to become a victim of crime. So it can be very shocking, very traumatic when something happens. And again, you don't ever really expect it. Um, and looking up, um, even Loud and me, you know, the, we had people contacting us who had been victims of burglary, assault, uh, road traffic accident, theft, antisocial behavior. So it really runs a wide range um, in terms of what people are being impacted by. Uh, and there's the here and now uh, and how you're feeling when the crime happens. Uh, but there's also the aftermath, isn't there? Because quite often uh, this can play on people's minds. Absolutely. So, you know, there's what we expect right after somebody has um, been a victim of crime is, again, that shock, that sadness, um, that fear. And and given, you know, time and support, most people, luckily, they they feel normal again, or they're able to return back to their normal activities. And it's Mm. not something that plays on their mind. But for some people that it really does, it has a really long term impact on them. And they find that they're not sleeping they're not eating right. They are um, having, you know, the, the thoughts of, of what had happened. It plays over and over and over in their mind. And that they really do um, need extra support and extra help in recovering and, and, again, getting back to that place where they're, again, quote-unquote, normal again. Yeah, and I, I suppose uh, there's uh, the cost uh, of what's taken in a, a burglary, as an example, and uh, there's the value of it. And sometimes you can't put a, a price on certain things. Absolutely. What we would hear time and again is that you know people, of course, they don't uh, want their to have their cash stolen or to be out. Mm-hmm. You know, have the financial impact that that is a terrible thing. But what we hear is people really saying it's the the sentimental values. It's the things that were. Um, you know, family heirlooms or things that were given to them by people that they really cared about who maybe aren't around anymore, that that is really what hurts. And that's really what takes time to kind of grieve the loss of those things that were had a really um, sentimental and, and important value to them that was, you know, beyond financial. 
Mm. And I suppose it's not something uh, that uh, the courts, for example, can take into account, or is it? Um, well, I, I think that it is something that the courts mm. can take into account, especially um, now, uh, as of uh, 2017, victims have new legal rights in the criminal justice system. So previous to that, victims didn't have really any rights at all. But so one of the new rights that victims have is to make a victim impact statement after um, the conviction or a guilty verdict and before sentencing. So victims of all crimes mm. can do a victim impact statement telling the judge, telling um, you know, the court, look, this is how it's impacted me financially, emotionally, this is how it's impacted my family, mm. um, so that they really do get a chance to say, you know, this, is, this isn't just a, you know, it didn't seem like it was a huge amount of money that was taken, but look, this is the negative impact it had on me and my family. Okay, and uh, there is a, a booklet which outlines a, a lot of this, which is uh, available uh, from your website, and uh, a video as well, which explains uh, the rights that people have when they find themselves in this situation. That's right, yeah. We, there's also a website as well as crimevictimsrights.ie, um, and it is, it's all, it's very difficult to avail of your rights, you know, if you don't know what they are. And mm. so the, the booklet is, um, we produced it last year, and it's in plain English, and it goes through, again, all of the rights that victims have throughout the criminal justice system. So it would be things like when you're reporting a crime, um, when you go to the guardie, you have a right to have someone with you for support. A friend, a family member can go with you. Um, you know, you can um, you have a right to get the, the, a copy of your written statement that you provided to the guards um, and so forth. And as well as you have a right to support services. So this is, again, a new right. You as a victim have a right to get that support um, that you, again, deserve um, and need after becoming a victim of crime. Do you ever hear from people who have reservations, uh, whether they uh, are worried about uh, being taken seriously or feel it's not worth reporting uh, at all, despite the impact that it might have had on them? Let's say somebody has broken into the house uh, and somebody says, you look, this has just destroyed my life. I can't sleep at night. I'm absolutely petrified. I hear floorboards squeak and uh, I don't know if somebody's coming in or if they're going to kill me. But realistically... Uh, they took 50 euro or they took nothing. They were in and out and they were gone and the guards are not going to be interested in it. Mm. Yeah, we would hear from people who maybe are trying to decide whether or not they're going to report a crime. And so one of the things that we do is, again, we're non-directive, so we don't tell people what to do, but we would um, describe the process and what they can expect and we can answer their questions, um, which can oftentimes um, alleviate this anxiety um, around, you know, should I, shouldn't I, you know, um, make this report? And we'll say, look, this is what's going to happen. This is what you can expect. And that oftentimes um, makes people feel more confident and secure in making a report when they know what's going to happen afterwards. Does it sometimes put people off when they know what's going to happen? Because, I mean, they might come in and say, look, you know, they they took everything. I was fleeced. Uh, but mm. It's bad enough without having to go down to the Garda station and, and uh, then having to go into court and having to go through all this stuff and, and relive it and all of that type of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things about um, being a victim of crime is that that impacts everyone and anyone. So mm. anyone can become a victim of crime. And so people have different ways of dealing with things. They have different values and things that they want to, you know, different um, expectations. And so some people, you know, that they, they would prefer not to report a burglary or something like that. Um, and again, and that's something that we would not tell people what to do. You know, situations are where um, there's, we have no, um, there's no leeway there is when it's been um, a child who has been harmed 
or we, if we have concerns about child abuse, child neglect, then of course, like we would um, have to make a report of that. Mm. As you say, people are more aware of your service and that's why more people are using your service. Uh, there's been a 52% increase in the number of calls coming to you since 2015 and almost 5,000 people in touch with you last year, 4,463 uh, by phone, email or text. Uh, and uh, no doubt uh, those uh, calls will continue. Uh, that line, as I say, is open six days a week, uh, 116-006, uh, Double seven double one is uh, the text number and uh, the email is info at crimevictimshelpline.ie. Michelle, thank you indeed for joining us. Thank you. Thank you indeed. Michelle Pacaber is uh, the executive uh, director of uh, the Crime Victims Helpline. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, I certainly remember a time uh, back, um, it was probably a long, long time ago when I was going to school and every day going to school I was asked to give somebody a push because their car wouldn't start. And I imagine that might be the case in Poland today. New stats uh, from Europe, Eurostat figures showing that 35% of cars in Poland are 20 years old or older. It seems incredible in a, a country where we have a very different fleet of cars. Almost a third of the cars in this country are under two years old. 27.5% of the cars in this country, at least in 2017, according to these Eurostat figures, were under two years old. And we have uh, some of uh, the newest cars in Europe. But all is not well, and that may change unless government takes action, according to the Society of the Irish Motor Industry. It's published its quarterly motor industry review for the second quarter of this year. The report is written by economist Jim Power, who's on the line. A very good morning to you, Jim, and uh, thanks for joining us. I don't know if you remember pushing cars for people on the way to school, uh, but uh, that wouldn't be the case in this country today. But do you have uh, some bad news for us, and you're suggesting that unless VRT bans are adjusted, uh, that we could see a decline of 75,000 new cars in this country? Okay, um, maybe I'll give you a little bit of background. Uh, I've been working on the motor industry for the Society of the Irish Motor Industry for some years now and basically I analyse what's happening in the market and I also try to project the year ahead what sales are going to be like and I had built up a pretty decent forecasting model it was based on a lot of stuff that you know you'd easily understand like employment, wage growth all the consumer confidence all of this stuff that kind of influences a person's decision whether to buy a new car or not and the model worked very well up until the middle of 2016 and then in the middle of 2016 Brexit happened, Sterling fell heavily on the exchange subsequently which continues and suddenly the whole dynamic of the motor industry changed dramatically and between 2016 and 2019 new car sales are down about 21% and over the same period there's been growth of about 38% in used imports mainly from the United Kingdom mm. and that's been driven by sterling weakness so what we've seen uh, and in the motor industry down on emissions uh, because uh, of measures that uh, they've taken there in relation to that sorry uh, because of uh, measures that the government has taken in the United Kingdom on uh, diesel emissions yes i mean Basically, diesels are becoming less popular in the UK, and a lot of them are finding their way into the Irish market. Over, excuse me, over 60% of the cars that we imported um, are diesel. So, uh, in other words, there is there is a risk 
that we are basically uh, dumping diesel cars from the United Kingdom into the Irish market. Uh, and of course, those used imports are undermining new car sales. And hence, 2017, 2018, and so far in 2019, we have seen an ongoing decline in new car sales. So for motor dealers, and they're a very important segment of every town and city around Ireland and indeed village, um, motor dealers are finding the business environment very, very difficult at the moment. And 10 years ago, they experienced a dramatic shock when the economy collapsed. Um, and they had just come out of that. Many of them barely survived. And now suddenly they're being hit with, you know, the surge in used imports in the UK, um, the uncertainty around Brexit, because mm-hmm. uh, we have no idea what a relationship with the United Kingdom is going to look like after the 31st of October this year. But the one thing that uncertainty is doing is definitely engendering a lot of consumer caution. And then I suppose the third factor that is really important at the moment, uh, and this is really the bones of my report, um, the European Union is introducing new emissions standards called WLTP. Okay, And those emission standards mean that um, the rate of vehicle registration tax will be very heavily um, driven by the emissions of the various cars. Right, this is the Worldwide Harmonised Light Vehicles Test Procedure, which takes a a look at real driving data rather than theoretical driving data. Yes, yes. And, And the point is that if those WLTP requirements are superimposed on the Irish market on the 1st of January next, Um, which is has to be the case if the government does not um, change the VRT bands we currently use Mm. to test emissions well then you will see the average price of a new car go up by about two and a half thousand next year that would prove calamitous for new car sales it would prove calamitous for those businesses in the business of selling new cars costing a lot of employment all around the country and I suppose most importantly from an environmental perspective it would result in a further surge in used imports from the United Kingdom. Um, and many of those imports are a lot less environmentally friendly than the new cars that are currently being sold in the Irish market. So a lot of uncertainty. Uh, 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 unless that's balanced out uh, by similar measures taken by the Irish government to those uh, that are, are taken by uh, the British government, which make it unattractive to continue driving diesel cars. And the objective of uh, this WLTP is uh, to benefit the environment, isn't it? In that it measures fuel it consumption indeed. and CO2 emissions and uh, the pollutant emissions. Indeed it is, um, absolutely. And um, the government recently published its Climate Action Plan and the basic view is that by 2030, every new car sold in Ireland will be electric or some type of electric um, and that by 2050, every car on the road here will be electric. Um, I believe that those targets are totally and utterly unattainable, uh, very desirable. Um, I would love to see a total electrification of the whole car fleet provided they are powered by electricity that is generated using renewable energy rather than fossil fuels. Uh, But as I say, I think those targets are totally unattainable. So what, what, what we've got to do is, you know, continue to work in that direction. But we need to make sure that we're selling as many new cars as possible in the Irish market because new cars, every car that comes out, every model 
tends to be environmentally better than its predecessor. So uh, with an, a new car fleet um, has positive implications mm. for the environment. Um, a lot of older used cars has very negative implications for the environment. But this increase in price wouldn't apply to electric cars, would it? Um, no, it wouldn't. It would, would it not. apply to hybrid cars? Um, it, it would have some impact on hybrid cars. But but yeah, not but to not, the extent not, that not you're talking about, of 2,500. Not that much. So it is in line with government policy, isn't it, uh, as it is obviously with European policy? Which the... The introduction of uh, the WLTP. Oh, yeah, I mean, mm. no, nobody is arguing that mm. the WLTP uh, standards should not be implemented here. But based on where Ireland's VRT system currently sits and the various bans that apply, if those bans are left unchanged, you will see a significant increase in the price of um, the average new car, two and a half grand. And if you look at some of the more popular models that people drive in this country now, like the you know the Nissan Qashqai, that sort of SUV type car, small SUV type car, mm. they could go up by three and a half to four thousand. So uh, I think that sort of price increase would be detrimental to the Irish car buying public. It would be detrimental to car dealers around the country and would cost lots of jobs in towns like Dundalk and Drada. Okay, we'll uh, leave it there for the moment. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Jim Power, economist and author of that quarterly report for the Society of uh, the Irish Motor Industry, who brings our programme to its conclusion today because our time has run out on us once again. Remember, there'll be a podcast of today's programme available on our website, lmfm.ie, this afternoon. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching, and Chris Murray in the control tower. I'm Michael Godwilling. We'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.